The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Hear God's word from 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 21. This is Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Wrote concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he suffered, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let me pray again for us. Father, now as we consider this portion of your word, we pray that we would see the gravity of it that we would truly um, appreciate what you have done, and we pray that we would grow in our our fear um, and respect and love for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hate to start off with an illustration that it mainly appeals to the men, but I know some ladies like football as well, so... um, I'm wondering, how many saw the Super Bowl? Did a lot of people watch the Super Bowl? Okay, so you've watched some football. Well, it's a very intense sport, as you know, as you watch it. And often in these games, you see something really critical at a critical point in the game where you, the, the announcers will go kind of nuts. And it's when a player is not practicing discipline, 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 self-control, self-control. And there's, there's such an intensity to the sport and these players are trained to hit and they have to make split-second decisions. But if they hit a guy that's just moved one foot out of bounds, it could cost them the game because it's a 15-yard penalty. Or if they hit a quarterback who's now sliding and defenseless, but you've gone low for the hit, but your helmet hits his helmet, well, you might even be out of the game much less a 15-yard penalty, you might be out of there. And so you see these things that happen in the game that are just very intense. And a lot of times penalties 
can flip a game. So if you uh, like rooting against the Cowboys like I did, seeing them self-destruct with 14 penalties for 80-some yards, they had more yards and penalties when they lost in the playoffs than they had yards rushing. You can't win a game with 14 penalties. Well, where am I going with this? Well, think of the church and think of what we're doing. Is It's intense right now. Satan is getting a lot of glory. I mean, his will is to divide the church. If we can just cause them in a moment of weakness to just throw off their uniform like A.B. did and run off the field and say, I'm done with this. I am done with this sport. I am done with this. Or to have a moment of lack of self-control and write something on Facebook or Instagram and just let everybody know what you really think of these, these Christians that have really hurt you and let you down. You see, so often what the coaches are preaching to their players is it's a team sport. It's not about you. And one person who makes one mistake can cost the whole team a huge victory and can turn it into a loss. And so we have to be sober-minded, preparing our minds for action because it's an intense time right now where the enemy is wreaking a lot of havoc and if he can divide Christians politically and racially, he can do a lot of damage. And there's a lot of things that are happening right now that caused the church to start focusing more on problems than on Jesus. What's gonna fix any of this? And the answer is Jesus. And so this passage is all about our salvation. He says concerning this salvation, that should be a reminder to take you back to say, oh, he's talking about salvation. That's what the first nine verses are about. Verse five. By God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then again in verse 8 and 9, it talks about though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your souls. We read some sobering passages this morning, did we not? I mean... And until you, you actually take those verses in and actually like, wow, these people got killed. Firstborn sons killed. And then that Jude 5 verse, Lord Jesus is the one who brought the exodus. And then those who didn't believe were later destroyed. And we sang about smiting and holy vengeance in one of our songs. You almost never hear of such a thing or sing of such a thing. But when we take that in, what are we saved from? What, what is salvation? That's the good news that Peter is preaching. I mean, he says at the end of the chapter, chapter one, this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is good news. And he says it again in verse 12, that this is what the prophets were preaching. They preached the good news to you. The good news is you can escape that. We all deserve death. We all deserve to be destroyed. We all deserve to be that firstborn son that's done away with. And we've all blown it. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet, this is saying this is good news. It's good news because there's salvation in Jesus. There is hope that is broken into this world. And so he's writing, Peter is writing these believers that are facing some difficult uh, grievous trials that he talks about in verse 6. 
grieved by various trials. And he's reminding them, as he tells us, I like when a book tells you what the point is, and it tells you in 5.12, what is the point? I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So this book is about the grace of God. And the grace of God is this salvation that he's writing about. And this salvation, this grace of God is the good news that was preached to you, but this good news goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And all the Old Testament prophets we see were preaching. And if I were to ask, you know, if you look, for example, if you look at verse 24, and he quotes from Isaiah 40, he's going to quote several times in this epistle from Isaiah, um, when he says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The idea of what he's getting at here is the word of the Lord abides forever. It's more alive than you are, is what he's saying. This is a living word. And we are just frail. We're like grass. We're like the flower. We're going to fall. We're not going to last very long. But this word will abide forever. And this word is the word that was preached to you. So the question is, who wrote Isaiah? Who wrote Isaiah? It's a trick question. Because the writer is telling us, Peter is telling us in verses 10 to 12, that it was actually the Holy Spirit. There's Isaiah, the human author, but the human author often doesn't even know all the things that he's writing about. And he's saying the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, this is for us, they searched and inquired carefully. They were like uh, detectives at a crime scene. They're, they're in searching and inquiring inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, that's the Holy Spirit, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what all the prophecies are about, is Jesus' sufferings and his glory. And he says it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves but you. That's us. And the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's the one working through the prophets to be on this message of suffering and then glory. And this is really important because if you look back at your reflection verses in the bulletin, I mean, Peter didn't have this. I mean, early on, and he, he's a follower of Christ. He's the first one to get it. When, when Jesus says, who do you think that I am? And Peter speaks up, I got the answer. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets it, light bulb, yay, Peter, right? And he tells him, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Six verses later, six verses later, Jesus begins to reveal his agenda and how he's going to build his church. He's going to build his church by suffering, and he's going to be beaten, crucified. And so Peter hears that, and he goes from the great confession to the great counseling blunder. 
and the great counseling blunders, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed the third day be raised. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Imagine rebuking Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, if I were to translate that into our world, we all have a plan. And we're we're happy for Jesus to come along with the plan, as long as it's a straight line. We all have a straight line. It's called the plan for my life. It's a straight line of no suffering. No suffering, no change in plans. We pray for smoothness, smooth plans, everything to go smooth according to plan, that I will live my life with the least amount of struggles as possible. I will prove myself academically. I will prove myself there so that I can prove myself professionally, so I can prove myself and then I can enjoy retirement and then I die and I get to be with Jesus. Straight line. All of us have straight line in our thinking. I wake up every morning with straight line. I do everything I can to have a straight line. And then you find yourself rocked because what happens? Is God about a straight line? I mean, if he had the plan for your life, he'd say, it's going to be all over. I'm doing this thing called smelting and melting and purifying your faith through trials to prove your faith, to refine it so that you'll praise and glorify me at the last day. And he will also praise and glorify us because he sees that our faith really loves him and not just the things. God has a different plan. And Peter still didn't get this. I mean, you know, he calls him Satan. Okay, that's a pretty hard word, isn't it? I mean, you go from, from being the rock to the scandal on to the stumbling block, the stumbling stone. That's a pretty big change in six verses. But later, as Jesus is praying for the cup to be taken from him, he resolves that, you know, he's got to go to the cross, and here they come to arrest him. But Peter doesn't want any suffering. He wants his Jesus to reign in glory. So he picks up his sword, and thankfully he missed. He's not a good swinger. Didn't get him in the head or the neck. He just chops off Malchus's ear because he's a straight liner. He wants to keep it all straight and smooth for Jesus. Going to fix it for him. Take care of the problem. Jesus is constantly blowing up our straight line that we have. This linear plan, this idea that it's all going to work out the way that I thought. Are you kidding? Like, who are we? We're these people that really need the Lord. And so all of a sudden now Peter has got it. Something has completely switched by the time he writes First Peter. Peter is just relentlessly on this suffering glory motif. This theme is going to run through the whole epistle is that Jesus had to suffer and then Jesus was glorified and we are to follow in his steps in this life. Jesus himself, if you look over at chapter 2, we see that Jesus is the cornerstone. We like that. He's the cornerstone, chosen and precious. 
But what does it say about this cornerstone in verse 7? We're told that this cornerstone is the stone that the builders rejected. He's God's cornerstone, but in the eyes of the world, all the builders looked and said, not that stone. Isaiah 53, I mean, it, it was, Jesus was accounted as nothing. We looked at him and said, well, he's, he's useless, he's worthless, he's not anything special, he's not anything special to look at, he's not attractive. And so the world just rejected him. Well, we follow him. What's that mean for us? Because he's called the living stone in verse 4, and we are, as his church in verse 5, are called the living stones, plural. And if he was rejected by the builders, what's going to happen to you when you go public with your faith in the workplace? They had this promotion for you. They did until they decided that we're going to reject you. We're going to move on because, you know, you're a little too forward with your faith and your, your, policy, your, your view of what you believe to be true is not in vogue with what the culture says will work. And so then we end up with this thing called affliction, suffering, trials. If Jesus was rejected. We too are going to experience rejection in this life. The difficulty is when we experience it from people that we really love. And it often comes in ways and, and places we didn't expect. We expect the arrows to hit us in the back or in the chest, and it's often the ones that hit us in the back that we weren't expecting. But that happens. I mean, who, who betrayed Jesus? <laughs> it's one of his 12. And so this, this theme, if you follow the book, he says, if you look down at chapter 2, verse 20, he says, but if you, when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in, in the sight of God. For this you are called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. There he goes quoting Isaiah again, Isaiah 53. So we're to follow in his steps. And Jesus suffered, and we're, 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 we're called to, we're going to share in his glory, Romans says, right? If indeed we share in his sufferings, Romans 8, 18. And so if we want the back end, we have to accept the front end. And so when you look at chapter 4, 1 Peter, he says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions or human lust, but now for the will of God. I've described that before. That's a tough passage. How are we to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking? Whoever suffered in the flesh. The idea is Peter is saying it's better to suffer for doing good than to do evil. And I've described this before. It's kind of like when you, when you go to the ocean and you're afraid to really get wet. But you really want to experience the waves, but you're, you're not afraid to just bust out through the water. What happens? All the waves are hitting you. You just keep getting hit. 
You're just like, ah, it's a little cold. What do you have to do? You have to just dive your head down and go through the waves, come up on the other side, and now you're past where all the waves are breaking. And now you can actually enjoy the waves because you've gone through it and now you've just said, I'm willing to take it. And once you've committed to that way of thinking that this life's going to involve some suffering, now I can live the rest of my time no longer for these human passions, but for the will of God. I've made a decisive break with this world. I've gone down, come up under, gone through, and now I can, I'm ready. Otherwise, you're going to just get constantly beaten up by the waves. Then he says in chapter 4, verse 12, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Like, I need that, like, you know, like a constant alert. Don't be surprised by this. Don't be, because I'm always surprised. And I'm usually a bit angry, too. Like, when these fiery trials come, Peter's just saying, don't even be surprised. Are, are you surprised by this? As though something strange were happening to you? Like, this isn't fair. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting the linear line. I expected everybody to be nice, that nobody would get any penalties, that we'd all work as a team. Nobody would ever get ejected from the game. We'd all play properly. And, and in an intense game, it doesn't always work like that, does it? And he's saying, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There you go with the sufferings again. Jesus suffered that you may also rejoice and be glad when, the, when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler. There's a good one to take. You know, like, let the suffering come because you're truly following Jesus rather than sometimes we, we bring it on ourselves. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And I think we've seen that this pandemic has created this, God is sifting and pruning his church. I mean, if you had to define the last two years, you'd say, well, he is pruning his church. It has been a purifying season. So what are we to do? Well, we're to suffer according to God's will, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Keep doing good. Don't just hang up your shoes. Don't do an A-B. Don't throw off your uniform and just throw your, throw your stuff into the stands and I'm out of here. I'm done with it. I mean, he looked like a middle schooler. I mean, it was the most immature thing you'd ever seen. Well, Look how he moves to chapter 5 and says this again. Once again, the same theme. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witnessing and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. There it is again. As well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So now he's calling the elders to shepherd the flock that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when... The chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Jesus suffered, then was glorified. We will suffer, we will be glorified. And that's how the epistle ends. Be sober-minded, be watchful, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We could just add for us in our culture that knowing that we have first world problems and that the suffering that most of the world is experiencing is acutely a hundred times greater than what we're experiencing. So don't think, oh, my situation's unique to me. Nobody else is. That's what the enemy loves to do is to think your problem is unique. No, your brothers and sisters have been suffering throughout the centuries and many parts of the world are really difficult, much more so than ours. And so then he says, after you've suffered a little while, there it is again, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory I mean, are you seeing a theme? Ding, ding, ding. This is what the prophets prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. That's all Peter is saying relentlessly throughout 1 Peter. And yet, we still want to take out our sword and chop off somebody's ear. And we have to come back to Peter who gets it. And we know that this straight line thinking, like, like we know that that is not going to work. Like, if I asked you, how many of you like a Hallmark movie? How many of you, I mean, you'd be afraid to, like, raise your hand if you did, you know? Like, because like, we know where it's going. It's not quite a straight line. There's always some plot twist in there. But they all end the same, right? You're going to get the guy. You're going to get the girl. You know, the thread is I'm going to move back to the city because I'm out in the country. But, you know, magically it's going to work out. And, and it always works out. And we kind of, and people are like, I don't want to watch that. But they sure do want to live that because we're hypocrites, we're hypocrites right? We don't, want, we, we don't like straight line, yet we do like straight line. We don't like it in the movies, but then we do. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler. I'm not a big James Bond fan. Probably haven't seen many of his movies. But the last one was really intriguing. Why? Because James Bond finally grew up. He finally became a man. He finally put away childish lives, childish things. When he discovered he was a dad, his mission in life changed. He's a different person. He's no longer living for himself. Who would think that JB could point us to JC? But one of the best lines of the movie is Bond saying, I have to finish this for us. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Last words on the cross, it is finished. We didn't, a lot of people didn't like the movie because it didn't have the straight line that they were looking for. It wasn't the ending that they wanted. But Bond grew up, and he laid his life down. Prepare your minds for action, he says. Gird up your loins is literally what it means. For us, that would mean roll up your sleeves. Prepare to get dirty. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully. This is not like some wishful thinking. The hope is like you know this is going to happen. Set your hope fully on this. The grace that's going to be re- brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your, glo- set your hope on glory and that's going to get you through the, the suffering in this life. As obedient children. That's not an imperative, it's an indicative. There's no, Jesus has obedient children. We were children of disobedience, Ephesians 2 said, following the lust of the flesh. And these children of disobedience that we were were also children of wrath. But God in his great love, in his mercy, 
raised us up when we were dead in trespasses and sins and made us alive together with Christ, he says in Ephesians. And now we, we are just, now we are obedient children. And so in light of that, don't be conformed to the passions or the lust of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed anymore. I mean, this is the same word that's used in Romans 12 too about, you know, the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold was the famous translation, the Phillips translation. The world is always trying to squeeze you into its mold. It re, it's like this boa constrictor. You remember the story that was told some years ago, I don't know if it was true or not, about six or seven years ago, about this lady that was sleeping with her boa constrictor. She had a seven-foot boa constrictor, and she would sleep with this thing. And then her boa constrictor stopped eating, wasn't eating for a while. So she finally takes it to the vet, and the vet says, what's going on is this boa constrictor is preparing for a big feast. And to prepare itself for the feast, has it been stretching itself out against you? Say, oh yeah, every night. Well, it's measuring itself of how much it's going to have to digest. That you're sleeping with the enemy. It's wanting to squeeze you into its mold. It's going to eat you. It wants to consume you. And here she was sleeping with the enemy. And she thought it was nice to be sleeping with the boa constrictor. No. Don't be conformed to the lust of your former ignorance. This is a huge problem in our culture. The issue of pornography has gotten much worse since the pandemic. Joe Carter just wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. It's scary. This is real stuff. We're in a real battle, and it's saying don't be conformed to these former lusts. And we are to be a people that are no longer ignorant. And the idea of this idea of ignorance isn't it interesting when the Bible often refers to ignorance, it's in context of repentance? Just listen for a moment or jog your memory. Acts 3, Peter preaching. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 17.30, Peter, or Paul preaching, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then he, Paul in Ephesians 4.17, he says, I, I, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted or being corrupted through deceitful desires or lying lusts, and you're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You see, we're no longer to live out of this agnosticism. That's through the word where we get ignorance. It's the same Greek idea here. You're no longer in that agnoia. Now you're, you're, you've come to knowledge, true knowledge of who Jesus is. And so Peter then appeals to the exile and to the exodus from Egypt to remind us that Christ was the Passover lamb. 
that we've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus and that you were ransomed, which literally means to be set free or liberated from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The idea is sinful generations of patterns that's no longer you. You're rather to be holy as I am holy, quoting from Leviticus 11, 44, 45. In Leviticus 19, the idea is these are the people of God who've now come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. They're now to be holy, just as we're now in exile and we've been delivered from this exodus. We are now to be this holy people. We were a slave to a bad master, even worse than to Pharaoh and to Egypt. We were slaves to sin, but now we've been set free and now we're obedient children and we're to live in light of who we are and our destination. Could it be that Fleetwood Mac actually got it right when they said, don't stop thinking about tomorrow? Don't stop, it'll soon be here. It'll be better than before. Yesterday's gone, yesterday's gone. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop, it'll soon be here. Yesterday's gone. Oh, don't you look back. Don't look back. Look ahead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fill your church with hope. And may that hope drive out despair and discouragement. Forgive us of our sins as we come to this table. We thank you that we have been welcomed to this table and accepted. Thank you that it is finished. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving everything to us. And now may we in turn, as we renew our vows, give everything to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.